This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. I'm Nathan C., and I'm excited to be joined for today's Out of the Blue podcast with our uh, other two podcast editors, Dr. Trish Critic and Dr. John Fleetham. Today, we're going to discuss some of the topics and articles that we found most interesting from the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine in 2017, a year that celebrated 100 years of the journal. Since Trish and John are usually moderating, they don't get to introduce themselves to our audience, so I'd like to change that today. Trish, Tell us who you are. Thanks, Nitin. I'm Trish Critic. I am a professor in the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at the University of Washington. I'm the director of our critical care programs here at UW, and I am lucky enough to be a podcaster with both John and Nitin. All right. That's great to hear. And John, tell us about yourself. So I'm John Fleetham. Uh, I'm a physician and clinical scientist in the Division of Respiratory Medicine at the University of British Columbia here in Vancouver, Canada, uh, where I'm a professor of medicine. All right, great. So now we're going to start this podcast with some discussion of a, a few pulmonary and sleep articles uh, that, that we discussed this year, uh, and then uh, we'll talk about critical care uh, later. So, John, uh, you know, you're an expert in sleep and particularly sleep apnea. And you discussed several interesting Blue Journal articles related to the impact of untreated sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea, on several important clinical entities. So I'd like to, to you to talk us through um, what you thought the take-home messages were for some of these studies. And the first one was one you did related to OSA and the effect on uh, diabetic retinopathy. Yeah, the first was a paper on diabetic retinopathy in patients with obstructive sleep apnea, which was published in October. Now, obstructive sleep apnea is very common in patients with diabetes. Approximately 60% of patients with diabetes have obstructive sleep apnea. And the previous cross-sectional studies have shown an association between obstructive sleep apnea and diabetic uh, microvascular complications. So in this paper, obstructive sleep apnea was independently associated with sight-threatening retinopathy in patients with type 2 diabetes who were followed over four years. And were there um, a particular uh, aspects of that paper that you found interesting or controversial? Well, I, I think it was, you know, um, it's, it's not only is there an association between diabetes and complications uh, or, or with obstructive sleep apnea, but, but if you have diabetes, you're more likely to develop um, microvascular complications. And so uh, this was the first finding. So it, it may be that if you have diabetes and obstructive sleep apnea, it's even more important that you be treated to prevent the development of those um, complications. That's interesting, John. Uh, and so, you know, just even following up on that a little bit more. Um, and so would you change, you know, thresholds based on your apnea hypopnea index in, in diabetics? You know, sort of like we change the blood pressure threat, thresholds in, in those patients? Well, I, I think you should think about that. Um, it's interesting, and this is this is a digression, but, but uh, similarly with COPD, patients with COPD, uh, they're much more likely to have cardiovascular disease. 
and there's some discussion now in the literature that you should change the thresholds with patients with COPD and be more, more aggressive about treating their hypertension. Uh, and then the another paper you discussed uh, related to OSA and renal function. Yeah, so I mean, this was interesting in terms of if you're more likely to have um, um, microvascular complications in diabetes, um, quite frequently diabetics will have uh, a nephropathy. And so the second patient was on renal function in patients with obstructive sleep apnea. This came out in December. So again, obstructive sleep apnea is a risk factor for chronic kidney disease, but also if you have a population of chronic kidney disease, a lot of those patients will have uh, obstructive sleep apnea. Now there are several observational studies which suggest that CPAP treatment may improve renal function. Hmm. Um, so this paper was part of a sub-study of a a large, important, uh, previously published study called the SAVE study, which was a large randomized trial of CPAP for the secondary prevention of cardiovascular disease. In the paper in the Blue Journal, uh, they found no difference in the decline in renal function in a CPAP-treated group and a control group. Um, hmm, that's so, it. Yeah, go ahead, Mitten. Oh, I, I, I was going to ask you, Trish. I heard him. hmm, so it sounds like you're intrigued by this. Well, I guess it does that make you feel any differently about being aggressive and treating these patients? Because if it doesn't show, when they look back at the data and it didn't show any difference in outcomes, okay, there's an association, but we know there's lots of common things that run in those two groups of patients. So I'm curious in your conversation when you talk to the author, what the kind of take home was. Well, I, I suppose I was just about to add, unfortunately, they were only able to do this, they only had renal function and on a small percentage of patients. So I think the total randomized trial uh, was uh, a patient population of more than 2,000, but they only had renal data on about 200. So it wasn't, a, it wasn't sufficiently powered for a definitively negative study. Um, so certainly a larger randomized uh, trial uh, is required to definitively conclude whether CPAP is renoprotective in patients with obstructive sleep apnea. And do you know if uh, such a trial is uh, is ongoing or upcoming? It's it's very difficult now to do randomized clinical trials where you have a control group in, in patients uh, with obstructive sleep apnea because um, it's very difficult to not treat treat people uh, with obstructive sleep apnea for three or four years, which is necessary uh, for these studies. You know, so many patients are symptomatic. There are many reasons to treat sleep apnea, and it's usually symptoms. Uh, and, and it's difficult to withheld this treatment for prolonged periods of time. So it's becoming progressively more difficult to do randomized control studies in patients with sleep apnea. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, uh, you say, you know, we need a better RCT, but it's really not so easy to operationalize that. Yes, I mean, the SAVE study was, was a big study, and, and it's re really shaken people up. So, I mean, what it, it, what it states is, it, at the moment, there's no reason to say to people, you need to have your sleep apnea treated to make you live longer. But there are many other good reasons to treat people with sleep apnea to make you feel better, uh, increase productivity, uh, fewer days off sick. Yeah, uh, I think that, that those are excellent points. And then the, the, you also um, discussed uh, OSA and effects on cerebral amyloid deposition. So, yeah, this paper um, was just published online in December. And, and it's a paper in terms of cerebral amyloid 
deposition in patients with obstructive sleep apnea. Now there's increasing evidence that untreated obstructive sleep apnea may be a risk factor for developing cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's disease. And so in this paper, uh, the investigators performed sleep studies on a cohort of cognitively normal elderly who were being followed for two years. And what they did is they performed uh, lumbar punctures and got CSF and performed brain PET scans um, on these patients at baseline two years and found that um, uh, obstructive sleep apnea severity was associated with the development of increased cerebral amyloid deposition, uh, which is a hallmark finding associated with the development of Alzheimer's disease. So, so you know, this, uh, I suppose, uh, further developed uh, the, 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 the findings that uh, we believe that sleep apnea may cause cognitive decline and, and dementia. I think that that's, you know, you just mentioned that... Uh that mortality outcome in, in, in the other study uh, it didn't find it made you live longer, but certainly if you can uh, 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 prevent uh, development of Alzheimer's disease, that's an entirely different ballgame. Though that's not what that study said. Is that right? I, I know. I'm, I'm extrapolating this. <laughs> so I want to, John to, uh, to, to clarify that. No, it, it, you know, it, it's a pretty sophisticated study, and it's done on an existing cohort. Uh, what it found was there was more amyloid, okay? It didn't show that there was more cognitive decline, uh, but uh, amyloid deposition is associated with the development of, of Alzheimer's disease and leads to speculation that, uh, again, uh, treatment, if you started treatment, it might be protective in terms of developing uh, cognitive decline. It's a really interesting study, but obviously getting CSF and doing PET scans across the population is not going to be practical. So I assume there's something in the pipeline to look at neurocognitive outcomes? Yes, they're looking at that, and, and I think there will be randomized studies uh, looking at CPAP in, in this group of people. I mean, it, you know, it, what they did is they, it was done by a neurology group, and they had an existing cohort, and then they added sleep studies to this. And I think increasingly with these uh, cohorts that exist, people are, are more and more um, looking in terms of the, the sleep apnea aspects of the patients. All right, Nitin, I'm going to ask you about a paper that you talked about earlier this year, actually a while ago. You talked about an interesting study that Nicole Tanner and her colleagues published in September that addressed the generalizability of the National Lung Screening Trial. So after that conversation, and obviously looking at the paper and talking about it, what do you think about the study? Yeah, it was, it was an interesting study, and I, I, I'm sure you all have had to deal with the the famous, you know, NLST study, the, the lung cancer screening trial, where uh, using CAT scan screening um, was able to diagnose more early stage lung cancers, so those patients received earlier surgery and had decreased mortality in the study that was published in the New England Journal. Um, the issue becomes obviously in a in a in a clinical trial, um, you're getting seen at expert centers. The patients tended to be younger um, than what we often see in patients who get lung cancer. So the question is, you know, when you apply that controlled trial finding to a 
a broader group of patients based on the Medicare and SEER databases, would you find the same improvement in outcome? Because obviously we are all going through a tremendous amount of effort and expense and optimizing processes to do all this serial CT scanning of patients. So, um, you know, they used this database and looked at older uh, patients who are on the older end of the NSLT criteria, 65 to 74, and they looked at their outcomes for stage one lung cancer surgery. Uh, and that's, again, across the Medicare database. So that's multiple centers, not just the expert centers in the trial. And they found similar 30, 60, and 90-day mortality, though slightly lower five-year mortality in patients who didn't have much comorbidity. So I think it, it did reaffirm that there is a mortality benefit uh, and even in patients in the real world as opposed to the, the, the uh, ecosystem of a, a randomized clinical trial. So in your discussion, did, it, um, did you guys feel like this really does push us towards establishing this as part of our standardized practice for this high-risk patient population? And did you talk about next steps beyond what they had done? Yeah, so I, no, I, we did, and I think that that's, um, the, the, the interesting part there are the comorbidities, right? So um, they also use a, a variation of the Charleston Comorbidity Index to look at people who had zero to one comorbidity. And, and as I said, those patients seem to have similar outcomes to when they compared it to the people in NLST. Patients had worse outcomes, though, if they had two or more comorbidities. And so, and, and the other thing that they did that was interesting is they looked at outcomes of stage one with surgery in the, in the SEER Medicare database versus those who had radiation. And the ones who had surgery had much improved uh, mortality across the five years compared to radiation. So I think it's clear that if a patient can tolerate surgery for early stage cancer based on the available data, that they should get it if they don't have much comorbidity that decreases their risk for surgery. I think the question that becomes more difficult is if they have comorbidities, defining what the what are the comorbidities that are the, the highest risk. Uh, you know, when we look at Charleston Comorbidity Index, a lot of the things aren't related to the lungs, which are the things obviously you're worried about in surgical risk in, in patients who are gonna get a, a lobectomy or, or, or other surgery um, for lung cancer. So I think that's the part that, that's unclear and there's more study uh, ongoing now, uh, both in the U.S. and, and uh, one of the, Dr. Savani was the, one of the other um, uh, uh, podcast participants uh, in the U.K. So I think it'll be, um, it'll be interesting to see what we do with those who, who are sicker but would, but would potentially benefit from, uh, from lung cancer screening. So I think that, that that is unclear at this point. Yeah, so maybe that's an area to kind of continue to refine that population and who we would screen. Because I think that the cost and the downstream effects of screening when you don't find a cancer still have people concerned about that. So those will be interesting next steps. I think that that's right. And I think, you know, there's the stress of going through serial CT scans. There's mm -hmm. the expense. I think mm -hmm. in the original paper, you know, more than 90% of the nodules found end up being false positives. So, um, yeah confirming that and trying to see who the most appropriate patients to, to go through that process. Uh, it, it's very important going forward um, and, uh, and accumulating more data and, and real-time experience I think will be very helpful. So then, uh, John, I, I wanted to talk about a, a, a podcast you did 
that, that I thought was interesting. We don't talk as much about uh, mycobacterial disease. So uh, you discussed a phase two trial of inhaled amikacin for the treatment of non-tuberculous mycobacterial lung disease. Um, it was led by Ken Olivier and it was published in the Blue Journal in March. You know, I'll tell you, I always have to go back to whichever literature source I need to use to talk when I look up uh, complicated treatment regimens for treating the, these patients. So I was hoping that this trial will help make our lives easier. So could you uh, outline some of the uh, important findings from this paper? Yeah, I mean, I, my research interest is in sleep apnea, as you can tell, but, but I'm a general respiratory clinician and I have a variety of patients with bronchiectasis. And as such, I find the management of pulmonary non-tuberculous mycobacterial disease to be quite challenging. Uh, you put these patient, patients on lengthy multi-drug regimens, often associated with drug toxicity and intolerance, and frequently, even at the end of this, it's ineffective. So I, that's why I was interested in this study. So as you mentioned, it was published in, in March. It was uh, reported a phase two randomized double-blind placebo trial of inhaled liposomal amikacin um, in a total of 89 patients who had persistently positive non-tuberculous mycobacterial cultures despite having received guidance, uh, guideline-based uh, treatment for at least six months prior to recruitment. Uh, the primary endpoint was a change in mycobacterial semi-quantitative growth scale at 84 days. Now this primary endpoint was not uh, achieved st uh, statistically but Amikacin resulted in a significant improvement in their two secondary outcomes, which was a progression to negative sputum and improvement in the six-minute walk. Um, so looked promising to that degree. Um, the treatment effect was most apparent in patients who had MAC uh, and didn't have cystic fibrosis. Um, most of the adverse events were respiratory, and in some patients it led to drug discontinuation. And do you, I don't know if you recall what the specific uh, uh, respiratory side effects were. Um, it was respiratory dress, uh, distress or, or cough or shortness of breath, you know, mainly related to getting the, the medication by inhalation. I think that's interesting. I mean, certainly the, the secondary endpoints are clinically relevant. So um, I guess what are your thoughts about uh, the future of uh, inhaled amikacin as a potential therapy for... Well, I think, it, I mean, this was a phase two study. Now, I mean, my understanding is inhaled, as you put it, in liposomal amikacin. This is a special delivery system, which hopefully will become available. Um, but at the moment... Um, you know, the treatment for non-tuberculous mycobacterial diseases is unsatisfactory. So we, we certainly knew, need new or additional treatments. I, I think, uh, I mean, it was a study of only 89 patients. Uh, there are a lot of these patients around. So I think bigger studies uh, will be done once this uh, drug becomes generally available. Thank you for that, John. Uh, Trish, uh, we want to move on to talk about a, a few critical care um, discussions we had this year. Um, I enjoyed uh, your discussion with Todd Rice. Uh, he had uh, a paper published in the May 15th Blue Journal, and I often have to go back and read afterwards at the time of the conference. That's always a busy time. And it was related to the SALT, the SALT study, looking at balanced crystalloids like uh, lactate ringers or plasma light uh, versus saline in ICU patients. So and this was related to that study. Uh, I was wondering if you could uh, clarify what you learned from the paper and, and then in speaking to Dr. Rice. 
So um, this is actually one of the most interesting papers that I think I talked about in the last year. And what was actually interesting was less the results and more the fact that what they tested out was a totally different way to do this study and it showed that they could do it and I think it allowed them to do a larger study which we're waiting on the results for. So what they did at Vanderbilt was they basically month by month changed the fluids in the medical ICU so that what was there when someone went to grab fluids was either saline or for the most part LR. And then they did some stuff in the EMR so that it kind of prompted people to pick the study fluid of the month um, and kind of push them in that direction. And then they really used their electronic healthcare record to pull all the data as well. So this is a really pretty cool idea and interesting concept that they were gonna basically drive the practice in the institution alternating month to month so that they could effectively get those two arms and compare. And their primary outcome actually in the study wasn't about renal failure or issues, clinical issues, it was did they succeed in getting saline half the time and um, a balanced crystalloid, like I said, mostly LR, the other half time, and, and they proved they could do it. And I think that that actually is really important because then that allows that method to be used in subsequent studies and, feel, and, and to do so on a larger scale and feel like, wow, we can reasonably end up with two balanced groups to compare. So that's actually a lot of what we talked about because I thought that was really interesting and, and, and it was the point of the study. Now, it ends up in addition to that, they found in the people who got a lot of fluid, so I'm gonna suggest that this was probably the people who were more likely in shock and potentially had sepsis, et cetera. We don't, I won't parse it that much right now, but they saw that there was potentially better renal outcomes in the people who got a balanced um, fluid, which is, I think is one of the clinical questions that we're most interested about. But really our conversation was more about this really interesting approach to study design and implementation. So in terms of, so instead of doing our typical RCT, they were just mm -hmm. changing the fluid of the month. Um, and then so they were able to extract um, all the things to make sure that the, uh, the, the groups were well matched while they were going back and forth month to month? Well, at the end, they were able to prove that they were well-matched and that, that they not only saw that, but they more importantly saw that, like, there was equal amounts of people getting whatever the study fluid is, mm -hmm. you know, so that they actually, people weren't circumnavigating their design and giving everyone saline. You know what I mean? It was a MICU, and I think if I had to guess, MICU doctors in the historical past moved towards saline and non-medical ICUs moved more towards LR and plasmalite or other uh, balanced crystalloids. But what they found was that there was a distribution that was pretty even between the ICUs. So I think that's really cool and it, what it allowed them to do, and I heard the results of these trials at CHEST was to do that across all the ICUs in the institution as opposed to just the MICU. And the results they presented, which I think are going to be coming out and be published in the next few months, were that they did it on a much larger scale and were able to demonstrate um, differences in, in renal outcomes and that there was less renal injury in the patients who um, got the balanced crystalloids. So I don't want to, I, I don't know all the details of those studies, but I think what was cool about our conversation about SALT and the reason that I think it was great that it was published in the Blue Journal was this is a new way to do a study which allowed them to kind of build upon that. Yeah, I think that's that's really interesting. And so I assume that the the clinicians could 
override it's the default fluid but if they really felt strongly they could use something else but but the study found that uh that there they didn't do that that much in the the months that they were they were supposed to get they they um they wanted to give saline they ended up giving more saline is that right yeah, that's exactly right. That you could override, there was guidance in the EHR, but you could always override it and choose whatever fluid you wanted. They could go get that fluid. It wasn't going to be like grab and go in that ICU at the time, but they could easily get it. So I don't think it had implications in terms of the patients not getting what a clinician would want. But very few people actually did that. I don't remember the numbers exactly, but I want to say like 90%-ish of the people in the arm that was designated got the fluid that they were supposed to get for that month. Todd would probably kill me that I wasn't more attentive in our conversation and remember the details of it, but that's the gist of it. And I think that was really interesting. Well, we'll post the article uh, 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 with this podcast. <laughs> Everyone can go back and fact check us, right? So. Exactly. Feel free to fact check me and email me that I got it wrong. We won't put your email up there. Thanks. Oh, they can figure it out. Um, but anyway, yeah, I thought that was a really interesting piece, and I had a great conversation about it. Now, Nitin, uh, you had a two-part podcast with Eddie Fan on clinical practice guidelines for mechanical ventilation in ARDS. What do I need to know about these guidelines? Yeah, uh, you know, I was um, quite excited. Uh, I'm a, a ventilator geek, I think, as I can uh, call Trish. Uh, I don't know if... Uh, uh, sorry to out you, uh, but this... Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. This is the, uh, the first real... The first major clinical practice guideline for, uh, you know, ventilated patients with ARDS. So uh, I think it was uh, uh, well uh, received and, and anxiously awaited by a community of critical care. Um and Eddie Fan was the uh, the lead author, and the group got together over several years. And I thought it was interesting. They, they asked six questions, um, and the and so they made the. I guess I'll talk about the two questions that they made strong recommendations for. One, they said, should should ARDS patients receive mechanical ventilation with to- low tidal volumes and low inspiratory pressures? And they they made a strong recommendation for keeping the tidal volume between four to eight milliliters per kilogram of predicted body weight and keeping the plateau pressure less than 30. And the second strong recommendation uh, they made is is uh, for prone positioning. And they said that there was strong evidence for prone positioning at least 12 hours per day in severe ARDS. They also made a strong recommendation against the use of high-frequency oscillatory ventilation um, in either moderate or severe ARDS. Uh, do you expect these uh, uh, guidelines to be widely adopted? Uh, do you think there's going to be any, any resistance? Uh... Well, I think you know. I think as Trisha uh, will attest to, there's always resistance in that in the community about you know how you sort of parse that um, data. I think one of the things that was there was a few things that were interesting. I think it's pretty standard for now people to get low tidal volumes. You know, the classic from the the famous ARMA paper is six cc's per kilo, but giving room for four to eight based on plateau pressure, or if patients have a lot of inspiratory dyssynchrony to go up on the tidal volume as long as you're keeping your plateau less than thirty. I think the, the part that was the, the the strong recommendation for prone positioning of 12 hours is a, and in severe ARDS was a little different than the famous Proceva trial that was done in Europe, where they found a 17% reduction in ARDS mortality with proning. But those patients had a mean of 17 hours of proning, and they um, they had a P to F ratio of 
less than 150. So that also included moderate uh, ARDS. But the uh, the invest but the uh, the experts who wrote the guidelines uh, suggested at least 12 hours, um, and only in severe ARDS based on the PDF uh, ratio less than 100, and that's based on some individual patient data uh, meta analysis uh, that they that they conducted. I think that's one of the more interesting parts of those guidelines, and I'm curious how you broached that in your conversation with Eddie, which. I listened to, but maybe you want to reflect on that because they kind of went in their own way in terms of hours and not doing the kind of more moderate to severe ARDS for a couple recommendations. Yeah, and and I think um, uh, you know Eddie was pretty clear that there was a lot of uh, heated yeah. conversation. I don't know, maybe <laughs> heated wasn't the word, but there was a, a, a lot of difference of opinion on on uh, on where to go there, um, and so I think um, though I think versus making it moderate to severe for the PDF less than 150 versus lengthening the time because each you know there have been many papers in the past that you did prone positioning for less than 17 hours they had improvement in oxygenation in, in the in the groups that had uh, uh, who were prone but they didn't have a mortality difference so, so he did acknowledge that and uh, I didn't get too inside baseball on why they ended up making that that compromise for 12 hours only in, in severe ARDS. I think it's always nice when you are talking to the folks who help create the guidelines to get that those background perspectives. I like that part of listening to your guys' discussion. I think it's it's it, you know I find for in general in these discussions it's you know you think that there as a clinician caring for patients you see a guideline like there's only one right answer and you know there's obviously so much nuance and you're just dealing with the data that you have and there are some holes in the data and you can't necessarily answer all the questions you want I think that that was what was interesting is you know one of the, one of their first their other six questions was uh, should patients with ARDS receive ECMO and they <laughs> said we will make no recommendation <laughs> because additional evidence is needed uh, regarding ECMO and ARDS. Uh, so I think that that's obviously something that, I don't know about you, Trish, but everyone asks me, you know, where are we going with ECMO? Is everyone at ARDS going to get ECMO? And uh, I think that that's one that uh, people are are excited uh, to study, but I think it was very appropriate for them to not make a recommendation because that obviously will be very controversial. Yeah, I feel like... Um, people are waiting for the French trial to come forward with their results on what happened with their study. But yes, I thought it was interesting that they decided to avoid that topic for now, which is legit, but I do think people want some guidance. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, I'm hoping that now, you know, you, and a, a topic so important, they'll, I'm sure they'll be giving revisions of these, uh, of these guidelines uh, over the next few years. So uh, we, can, uh, we can answer these questions, hopefully. Um, I'd also, Trish, on the topic of, of ARDS, I thought it was nice um, you, did, you uh, uh, discussed the article by uh, Kamdar and, and colleagues about joblessness after ARDS. And obviously, we take care of people at the bedside, and we know about post-ICU syndrome and long-term impact, but we don't really see it, obviously. Uh, so um, talking about joblessness, uh, I thought, was very interesting and, and really important work. Um, and I guess, how did reading that paper and, and having that discussion with Dr. Kumdar and Dr. Needham change how you think about this? Well, I mean, I, I said this to them when I talked to them. I think it the results resonated with me, but they put numbers to something that, 
you kind of suspect and or think might be true but don't really know and I think as you just said really highlighted the longer term impacts of ARDS and I think Margaret Harridge has done a nice stuff with this and I think this was complementary to, to those data. I think we're starting to think about the impacts on families more so I think it's part of this growing body of literature that we have about you know what happens when the patient rolls out of your ICU a lot still happens and there's a lot that still people are dealing with. So the fact that they found that nearly 50% of the people who had been previously employed were jobless at a year after their admission for ARDS is pretty sobering. And they also quantified kind of how much lost earnings that was, which was also pretty impressive. So I think it's starting to put numbers and kind of degree of impact of critical care admissions. And, and I think, as you said, it was patients with ARDS, and I don't think it's fair to extrapolate to all critical care admissions, but I think it does give you a gist of probably what happens to people when they have a prolonged ICU admission. It has a lot of impacts. And so I thought it was interesting to talk to these guys because I've been trying to look at these series of papers that are starting to give us a better sense of what are the costs of critical care downstream. And I mean that literally, they talked about lost earnings, but really also kind of on the patient, on their family, on their quality of life, on their on their ability to return to the to the job and other parts of their life that they had prior to. So I thought we had a really nice conversation about that. And clearly it's uh, an area that they're both passionate about. You know, I I, I think about this and, and, I, and I'm always thinking about what are we going to look back in 10 or 15 years and say, well, why did you guys practice that way? And so you wonder, am I doing something that improves the short-term outcome that can have profound effects in the long-term that we can't recognize now? So, you know, I, I, I hope, it's, I know it's not easy when these trials get funded that they can get funded and look at, you know, hard 28, 90-day mortality, but also look at long-term outcomes and follow these patients out to see that we didn't accidentally do something um, that was harmful long-term uh, as we, as we um, treat these patients. Well, I think that's a great point. I, I think the other thing is I think we're starting to see more efforts to try to think about these longer-term outcomes as we're taking care of patients in the ICU, at least in terms of the physical stuff, right? So I think we're seeing more stuff about early mobility. We're seeing, you know, trying to figure out how much physical therapy is the right physical therapy. When should that, physical and occupational, when should those therapies start? How intense should they be? There's, you know, a number of studies. I talked to Mark Moss a couple of years ago about one that was published in the Blue Journal. And I think we're thinking about those parts of it and certainly physical function is part of getting back to your job but we probably haven't been looking at what we might do in the ICU and other aspects of how people do downstream quite as much so I, I feel like it's coming into what we're thinking about we're so much more aware of the downstream uh, implications but I feel like we're just at the cusp of this this part of our study so I, I've seen more and more of this stuff this this area of investigation in the Blue Journal, I think that's great. And I think in critical care in general, we're thinking about this more, and I think we have a lot of room to continue to grow. Yeah, I think that's right, and I think we're going to find some really interesting things going forward that will certainly change how we practice. And, and, and you're right, you make the example of physical therapy-invented patients, with which you know we would have thought was uh, crazy uh, uh, some years ago. So uh, we keep moving forward and hopefully improving patient outcomes, whether it's related to uh, sleep, pulmonary, or critical care. 
Um, so I, I did want to thank you. It's very nice to talk to the two of you and get all three of us to talk about what we learned in the Blue Journal this year. Uh, and I want to thank our listeners for listening to our podcast in 2017. I hope they're keeping you informed. And if you have already not done so, I encourage you to subscribe to our Out of the Blue podcast. You can find them in iTunes or your favorite podcast player by searching for American Thoracic Society. So I'm Nathan Seam for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, and I thank Trish Critic and John Fleetham for joining me today. Thank you.